Okay, well, let us uh, continue in our study of the book of Daniel. When we have holidays, you know, we uh, go uh, all different kinds of directions. Okay, and uh, we want to turn to the fifth chapter today. The fifth chapter of uh, the book of Daniel. Okay? And in these uh, first chapters, we, uh, we find uh, Daniel, to, um, Daniel and his friends to constantly be challenged with the world around them. They're constantly challenged with uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, people that uh, uh, don't uh, agree with them. They're, they're uh, challenged in the culture. Uh, and, and that continues uh, here, in the, uh, here in the fifth chapter. Now, the fifth chapter... Uh, takes place uh, years later from the first three. It's not actually, it may not even be in chronological order because the, the visions that Daniel had actually uh, uh, came to him before chapter 5, chronologically. Okay? All right? So uh, here in chapter 5, notice it says Belshazzar, the king. Okay? It's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore. Belshazzar, the king. Most believe this is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And uh, chapter 5 of Daniel takes place at the very end of the reign of the Babylonians, okay? The very, very end. If you uh, are familiar at all with this history, you know that uh, you had the Babylonians, and then you had the Medo-Persian Empire, then you had the Greeks, and then you had the Romans, and then, of course, there were many empires after that as well, uh, but in the Bible times, anyway. Uh, and so, uh, chapter 5 takes place at the very, very end, uh, you might say the last day of the Babylonian Empire, okay? The Persians were surrounding them, uh, just about all was lost. You would think that uh, they were at their battle stations, you would think that they were ready that the king was on top of everything, but they decided, let's have a party, right? And uh, that just goes to show you, it's a great paradigm for uh, what's going on here. That while everything is falling apart around them, they just sort of continue on, enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right? Daniel at this time is probably an old man. Well, he is. He's an old man. He's got to be old at this time. Okay? Uh, and what we'll see in this chapter is that he's uh, actually kind of uh, well-known uh, by this time. All right? But some very interesting things get pointed out to us as we read it. So it says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, this was no little uh, get-together for wine and cheese, you know what I mean? This was a major event. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. 
When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or his grandfather, the one before him, you know, you might say, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So these verses are telling us, like screaming at us, what's happening is, is that the vessels of the holy God are being profaned. That Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, is blaspheming, really, the God of Israel, in word and or deed, is blaspheming, making common the holy things of God. And uh, 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 drinking from them, uh, uh, eating and drinking from them, okay? Uh, and using them, notice it says in verse uh, 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, and silver of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only is he just taking these holy articles, which interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar did not mess around with. He took them, but he didn't mess around with them. But Belshazzar is taking them and flaunting them and, and using them uh, for, uh, you know, at a party, you know, to, it, it'd be like uh, saying, let's say, uh, you uh, have your great-great-great-grandmother's China, you know. Uh, no, that's probably not China. Eh, all right, why not? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, your uh, eight-year-old is having a birthday party. No, that's a work now. Okay. So your eight-year-old is having a birthday party. Let's use great-great-great-grandma's fine China for the birthday party. Why not? Hey, let's enjoy, Right? That's horrible, right? That's even horrible to think about, that you would do something like, uh, uh, something like that. Well, you know, multiply that many times over, and that's what you have here. That's what you have going on here. Uh, something uh, very horrible. The picture is like of debauchery, you know, and using holy, holy articles to praise uh, false gods, taking holy things and using them in such a way that it brings shame to the God of Israel. And you'll notice uh, here, as it's written, notice that uh, not only do we read temple, which was in Jerusalem in verse 2, but in verse 3, if you observe it, it says house of God, which is in Jerusalem, like making the point if we don't get it, you know. Uh, uh, and so this is really, really horrible. So you have the Persians right outside the door or the Medes and the Persians, whatever, right outside the door. And uh, you have uh, uh, the king uh, uh, not only having this big party, but taking the vessels of the God of Israel and using them in a, a terrible, terrible way and praising his gods. This is all the recipe for hor horrible things, horrible things. So now we read, suddenly, suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. 
And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, it's interesting. You know, it doesn't say uh, he saw a vision of a man's hand, you know. It doesn't say uh, that uh, there was a, um, uh, you know, a shadow of a hand. He saw a man's hand. That this was a supernatural event that took place that God had orchestrated uh, uh, in that room. And so there is a hand writing on the wall. Okay? A hand writing on the wall. That in and of itself is scary enough, you know, uh, that, that maybe we should stop using these uh, vessels, you know, in, uh, in, in such a way. Okay? Uh, uh, but we see it, he did get scared, right? The king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And then look what it says. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Okay? So he was really scared. All right? He was really scared. This definitely got his attention. So now, like from previous chapters, we read it, as we read about Nebuchadnezzar, he calls his, uh, you know, his cast of characters, you might say, to come. The people who are supposed to be able to to interpret these things, right? The, the magicians, the conjurers, the, these uh, people uh, uh, in these Babylonian, these Chaldeans, who are supposed to be able to figure these things out. And of course, they can't figure it out. They can't read it, okay? They can't read it. So the queen, most pe people believe this was his grandmother, okay? In verse 10, entered the banquet hall, because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, uh, and, uh, and diviners. Okay? All right. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now Daniel, let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Okay? Now I want to read the next verse too, actually. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought before Judah? What's, the reason I want to read verse 13 is because no matter how long Daniel has been there, no matter how many dreams Daniel has interpreted, and as we'll see in the next chapter, no matter how uh, efficient Daniel is at anything he does, he is always an exile from Judah. Even though like many years have passed, he's not considered a Chaldean, He's not considered one of them. He is still an exile from Judah. In other words, one of those Jews. See? 
So Daniel still being considered different, even though he has a high uh, a place and has done many things, he's still considered different from the rest. Okay, And he's brought in because, not because he's an exile, not because he's a Judean, but because there's something extraordinary about him. And that was recognized by Nebuchadnezzar. It's recognized by others here. And so Daniel is brought in because he was an extraordinary man. There was something about him. They could not quite put their finger on it. But they knew that it was mysterious and they knew that it was supernatural. But they can't quite put their finger on it because of the way they describe it. Certainly they're not describing him as, oh, a godly man, uh, you know, uh, who worships the one and only God of Israel and, and all of that. No, they, they see him as like a different kind of conjurer. So, so there's, they're blind, but they see the results that there's something different about Daniel. Okay, so they bring him in. All right, now, uh, if we uh, uh, jump down to verse uh, 16, it says, But I personally have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed in purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Okay, so now this was a great opportunity for Daniel. See? What a great opportunity. Uh, uh, now, consider somebody today uh, who uh, is known as a person who, can, who knows the Lord, you know, and they can interpret dreams and, and they can do great things. And, and so the, uh, the president or a high, high uh, political person holding high political office has him come. We who would hear about this, we would think, oh, this is great because we need more believers in high places. See, like this is what an opportunity, you know, what an opportunity to make a difference, right? So Daniel having this great opportunity now for greatness to be the third ruler, to be, to have power because that's what we need, right? We need more power because if, if we as believers have more power, imagine how we can turn the world upside down. If we have more political power and accolades, just think what we can do for God. Well, let's see how Daniel responds. Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Wow, that's pretty interesting. But, you know, Daniel's like, he's like blowing it, <laughs> you might think. If this was in the 21st century, this is what we might think. We might think, keep your rewards to yourself. You know, it's okay. Uh, I don't need to hold that high office. I don't, I, I, I don't need that power. But I will tell you. I will minister to you. I, I will... Uh, uh, serve you and, and give you what you're asking me spiritually, the spiritual help that you're asking, I will give you, but I don't want all that you're giving me in return. What a great lesson for us, right? I, that uh, Daniel's power comes from God, not holding a political position within any government. While certainly 
uh, people are called to different things in different places. Let us, and, and it's fine, I'm, I'm not saying anything about people who know the Lord holding public office. No, I'm not at all. But if we think that that's what makes the difference to God, that's where we, <laughs> that's where we, uh, we run into some trouble. Because none of the kingdoms of this world, see, every kingdom of this world, including the one we live in, has one thing in common. Ultimately, they fall. Ultimately, they fall. That's what the book of Daniel is all about in every chapter, you see. The power that Daniel have, has is the power of God. And he gives warning to people in high places, see? And so that's what we see here, all right? Again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that uh, today uh, believers should not hold office or or be decision makers, but if we think that that is what's going to save uh, our country or the world or whatever, you know, uh, that's not it. You know, it's, it's Yeshua. Uh, it's the kingdom of God. I, I, that's a very important lesson uh, that, uh, that we need to, to learn and learn from, this, uh, learn from this passage, Okay. So now he says, O King, the Most High God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. So now he's going to tell this king, let me tell you about your grandfather, okay? And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled him before him, whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Okay? Uh, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. In other words, he was king of the world, but you see that God is the one who raised him up, and God is the one, Belshazzar, who took him down. You see, you need to learn this lesson about who the real king is and hence where the real power is. Okay? So he goes on and he says, But when he heard, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Right? And then it goes on to say, uh, you know, that God drove him away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he uh, sets over it whomever he wishes. Okay, all right. Of course, we could pause there and say that is a great lesson that we also need to remember that God raises up, God takes down. That, that uh, uh, all of our ingenuity does not control what ultimately happens. And money and power don't control ultimately what happens. It can be used, you know, used uh, even for great things. But God whether people believe in him or not, controls ultimately what happens, oversees what happens, whatever terminology you like to use. 
You know, sometimes I think that what we really think is that he only controls uh, uh, what's going on if we believe that. But if we don't believe that, then it really is a free-for-all, you know? But no, it doesn't matter what people believe. God is God. You know that even if no one believed in him, even if no one received Messiah, God would still be God and Yeshua would still be the Messiah, even if no one believed, see? And so it's great to be on his side, see? And so it's great to have the opportunity to indeed know him and to be able to frame our world that way, you know? And so what do we read here in verse 22? Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, right? And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. It's almost humorous, that, that part, you know. But the God in whose hand are your uh, life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. And so here he tells him very specifically, you don't get it, and it's obvious that you don't get it. Your pride is obvious because look what you're doing with the vessels from the temple. And he calls him out on this issue of drinking from the vessels of the temple. This is a physical manifestation of his pride and hubris, you know, and lack of humility, and, and frankly, just not, not recognizing uh, at all uh, the, uh, the God of Israel, okay? Uh, and so it is interesting, it says, you know, at the very end of verse 24, then the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Then it says right after that, then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Okay. And so it's no coincidence. So the, the hand of God in whom you dwell, is a hand, it's his hand that is writing to you this, this message. Okay. Okay. So the handwriting, the, the words, okay? Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin, right? And, uh, you know, it is very interesting to read the etymology of these words that nobody really completely 100% knows. But it is, it is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, uh, but you do have here a divine interpretation, this is the interpretation of the message. These are, by the way, uh, what most people believe is that they're actually um, measures of uh, money, measures of money uh, in, in, in some way, okay? Uh, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient, meaning weight, you know? Uh, Peretz, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so it's divided, weighed, and numbered, one could say. So the point is, is that the king would have understood what these words mean, and perhaps they were words that might have, might have meant to him in another context great things like wealth. But Daniel interprets why they're written on the wall. They're written on the wall to tell him that his kingdom is going to be divided. 
his days are numbered, and he is found deficient. And this is what Daniel tells him. Okay? Then, interestingly enough, you would think, now, wow, I, you know, how do I respond to this? Maybe I should repent. Maybe I should put away the vessels and, and uh, somehow ask forgiveness of this God of Daniel. But rather than that, he remains oblivious to his danger. And so what does he do? Against Daniel's own wishes, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him. And now he had authority that now he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel is saying, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of this. But the king is oblivious. Daniel was able to interpret it. And so now he gives him this great honor, not even realizing that the end has come. And so then we read, right after that, that same night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So it's over. <laughs> and it's written that way. That here there is this great... Uh, this uh, a great uh, a festive event that uh, the, the Persians are right outside the door. Uh, uh, the king is blaspheming uh, the God of Israel. Uh, Daniel tells him the interpretation of this great sign that's given to the king. The king is oblivious to it, and he dies. So... And then, of course, uh, you have now, in, then in chapter 6, it's the Persians who are ruling, and they, the Babylonians are gone. So what I, you know, certainly uh, there are lessons for us to, uh, to learn. We've learned some of them, right? Uh, some of these lessons about where, uh, from at least if we are going to see Daniel as a role model, of sorts. Uh, we see where his priorities were. It wasn't in gaining a foothold in the kingdom, that's for sure, because he knew that it was going to end. He knew that this is not the kingdom where I'm going to put all my uh, eggs into, right? Uh, and we see uh, other things about Daniel. We see that he remained in exile. He was still known as an exile, right? As a Hebrew, as a Judean, right? Uh, and we see, again, just like in the other chapters, he doesn't compromise. He doesn't become like them. He won't take on their ways, at least voluntarily, but he will speak into their culture, and he will speak into their lives. Daniel, uh, therefore, is a great model uh, for us. You know, uh, uh, we, we as Messiah followers are called to live in this world to speak into this world. The goal isn't to just be like everyone else and, and that gives us more opportunity. The goal is to be able to speak into this world. If we're going to be able to speak into it, we do have to have relationship with it as, as uh, you know, someone said, uh, you have to be in the room to turn the light on, right? Right, right? Uh, however, we have to always ask ourselves, what, well, now that I'm in the room, where do I stand? And what do people know about me? And what is my reputation? Do people know me as someone who's different and there's something different about you and there's, there's some kind of spiritual element or dimension? 
people know that? Or do they only know our physical attributes or, and gifts? You know, like, wow, he's a real bright guy, or, uh, oh, a very a, a good orator, or, uh, or a good teacher, or, you know, whatever we may, whatever we may be in, in life. A good mom, a good dad, uh, whatever, uh, a good doctor, a good lawyer, whatever it is. Or do people know us, perhaps, uh, that there's something different about us? Hopefully, that in the way that we carry ourselves and in the way that we communicate with people and how we can speak into people's lives, people know that there's something different. Even if they don't exactly get it. Just like the king here. He didn't quite get it. Nor did his grandmother. She didn't quite get it. You know, the spirit of the gods. I don't know what it is, but there's something really unique about this Daniel, right? And so may that be true about us. Even if people don't exactly understand it, may there be something about us that just uh, comes through, one might say. So, great lesson. Another lesson for us is on the other side of the coin. You know, of course, in this chapter is a very famous phrase, or a phrase that comes from, based on this chapter, right? The handwriting is on the wall. Comes from here. Where it comes from? Everyone, where did that little phrase come from? It came from the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel in the Bible. Okay? So we use it different ways. We might say, well, as we observe something, we might say, well, the handwriting's on the wall. You know, in other words, we know what's going to happen. You can see it coming. And then other times, it's more like, do you see the handwriting on the wall? You know, do you see, you know, where you're going? Do you see what's happening? It's like a done deal. Do you see, uh, uh, do you understand what's happening? Uh, and, and so we need to ask ourselves, if we see the handwriting on the wall, do we see the handwriting on the wall in our world? Can we look around us, you know, and, uh, and think beyond, Lord, help me to get through today, you know, or, or help me to, you know, help me in, in uh, you know, passing the test and, or help, help me, uh, you know, in, in issues in my own life, which are very important. But in addition to that, do we see beyond that and see perhaps what God may be doing in the world, all around us, in our own community, in, in the culture around us, uh, in our state, in our country, in our, in our world, you know? And, and what do we do about it, <laughs> Right? So here we see um, uh, the king did nothing about it, right? It's actually interpreted for him, and he does nothing about it. I think that most of us, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we would say the handwriting on the wall is, is that we are headed uh, into an abyss when it comes to the culture, when it comes to uh, uh, you know, the alignment of nations, uh, when we see the, the rise of Islam, the way we see it as we've never seen things like we're seeing now, we've just never seen it. We've never seen it, right? Now, I will say that every generation can say that. You know that? I mean, if you were a believer, if you were a Messiah follower in 1980, you know, we're seeing things we've never seen before. You know, absolutely, right? Uh, 1990, around then, for sure, right? 
We're seeing things we've, we never thought we'd live to see the day. Uh, and, and so every generation or, you know, sees things that are ominous signs. Because, you know, ever since Yeshua rose from the dead, there's been ominous signs, frankly. Okay? And we are no exception. Uh, and we are indeed living in a day that, boy, anything could happen. Could happen. Right? When we see the handwriting on the wall, what we see is, is that this is not a culture that is amenable to our, uh, what, the, what the Bible teaches. That uh, believers, some things that are unique to our day is certainly Messiah followers, the persecution of people who embrace Yeshua. That really is a very, um, and in Western nations, that is uh, kind of unique right? Uh, we see that. We see uh, all kinds of political things. Look, um, you know, look at North Korea. If you think about that country long enough, you can't help but get depressed, okay? When you think of the capabilities of, of, the, of the strange man who is the leader of that country, uh, uh, you, you can't help but, but wonder, what's the world coming to? And in the Middle East, you know, one, one um, itchy finger, and who knows what happens. I mean, when you think about it just horizontally, it's very scary. The handwriting on the wall is that there are ominous signs of, of like the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars and false prophets. And, but I want to tell you, I cannot help but say it, before I was at Beth Messiah, I used to work uh, for a ministry uh, for uh, 12 years, and a lot of what I did was travel a lot in Canada, for whatever reason, a lot in Canada, but also around the United States in like prophecy conferences, end-time prophecy conferences. And I can't tell you how many times the very... This was in 1981, maybe 1982. Wars, rumors of wars, false prophets... You know, the New Age movement, right? False messiahs, heard it all before. The point is, is that we always see these things. The Apostle Paul saw them too, okay? And that was a really long time ago, all right? But we see them too, and that should not diminish it. But we don't run around like chickens with our heads cut off, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. But... The, the Lord calls, he says, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Uh, uh, Paul, in talking about prayer, says, be prudent, be, walk circumspectly, be sober. Know what's going on, is the point. Know what's going on around you. And so the handwriting on the wall is such that as Messiah followers, we should always see ourselves as God has called us to speak into this world. God has called us to speak into this culture and not simply live within the culture as, as believers in some kind of like a conclave of comfort. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, uh, where we are just uh, simply, we have our nice little bookstore and we got our nice little Bible studies and we, those are nice things. I'm not saying anything bad about them. And I, uh, I uh, patronize these places too. I'm not, nothing bad about it. 
We need to see beyond it, is what I'm saying. We, we need to see outside of it. We need to see that we're all called. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you've all heard of the Salvation Army, right? Well, you know, in a way, uh, it's a good phrase. <laughs> you know, because we're called to be in an army of salvation for this world, okay? Not necessarily picking up newspapers and clothes, all right? But sharing the good news of Messiah. By the way, on a little side note, did you know that in Canada, the Salvation Army is a very um, on-fire uh, denomination. Very, they, they're very, uh, it's very foreign for them to the, like the, uh, the, the trucks and the picking up stuff. It's, it's very interesting. Anyway, I just thought I'd say that. But we are called to uh, be in an army of salvation, of bringing uh, the good news of Messiah into a broken world. And there are many venues in which to do that, through our jobs, through our neighborhoods, uh, public events, whatever it might be, you see. And, uh, and so when it comes to uh, the, uh, seeing the signs, we have a message. First, when we see things going on, we need to make sure that we are walking with the Lord. The response, when we see bad things happening, the response is, let's get right with God and let's bring this message to others. You know, uh, let me just finish with the, uh, the Haftorah for today, the uh, portion for today in Luke 13. That's a perfect, a perfect way to understand the handwriting on the wall and the response to the handwriting on the wall. And so as real Messiah followers in this world, who, whose Lord is Yeshua, who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, we should always see the kingdom of his beloved Son as light, and the domain of darkness is all around us. And we should never be lulled to sleep. Thinking, it's okay, you know, everything's kind of copacetic and okay. But we need to recognize the importance of, uh, of calling this culture to repentance. So in Luke 13, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, the point is, is that here a report came that Pilate had done this dastardly deed and killed these Galileans and then use their blood in heinous ways. You know, how could this happen to them? And what do they ask Yeshua? Uh, well, they, they tell him about it, we could say. And he answered and said to him, said to them, because he knew their hearts. Because what they really wanted to know is, why did this happen to them? Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. No, they were not. See, this debunks the, the friends of Job, that it didn't happen to them because they sinned greater. See? And so let that be a lesson to us all, that when we look to judge, like judge cities, judge people, oh, that happened because, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw this out there. You may disagree. But I remember in 2006, was it 2006? Five? Katrina, New Orleans. God is judging New Orleans. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Columbus, Ohio, in the short north. Okay, I want to tell you that could use a flood, all right? You know, um, I used to live in Los Angeles. 
need I say more? Right? Uh, who are we to say that, oh, see, God is doing that there? No. I don't know. I don't know, and neither do you. But I say, let's do what, let's respond the way Yeshua said. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So when you see something like that happen, or you, of course, you know, the Twin Towers, you know, uh, 9-11 and all of it, the response is not, oh, see, hello, friends of Job. Hello, friends of Job. No. What are we called to do? We're called to repent. You see that happen there? I'm repenting. Who am I? Who am I to point fingers at them? Or who are we to point fingers at that place? I don't know that. But what I do know is that we're called to repent and that we are called to bring a message of repentance and salvation. That's how we're supposed to respond. That's how we're called to respond, according to the Bible. And then there's another one. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? A tower fell on people. And Yeshua says, no. He doesn't say, he's not ambiguous. He doesn't say, well, maybe. He says, no, they weren't. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's his message. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When we see the handwriting on the wall about, you know, how things are going, we're called to repent and we're called to speak into this world. We may look at our own lives and, and say, boy, I, I, I can see what God is uh, up to. There's, there's things happening that, you know, in, in my own life, I can see the handwriting on the wall. How do I respond? I respond with godliness. I respond by uh, repenting and, and by speaking into this world. And so, may we not be like Belshazzar and just eat and drink and say, oh, well, whatever. As long as, as long as I have mine, I'm okay. As long as I have what I need, I'm okay. But may we see ourselves uh, as called people, uh, exiles, in whom there's something different to speak into this world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear that you have indeed opened up our, our eyes and we can see the handwriting on the wall. We can see, Lord, that, that your judgment of this world is indeed coming, Lord, uh, and perhaps is even present. But Lord, may we uh, see it and respond appropriately. May we respond with repentance. May we respond with Yeshua. May we respond, Lord, by explaining to people that there is an alternative way. There's another way to go. Not a way of fear, not a way of hopelessness, not a, not a way of denial, but the way of life, real life. Lord, may we all be exiles who are emissaries of the kingdom of God into this world. Lord, let us be sober, let us pay attention, and let us truly see the handwriting on the wall, and may we respond well. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.